We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter, and the first chapter, the book of 1 Peter, and the first chapter. And I'll be reading aloud and then preaching this morning on verses 3 through 5. In fact, it'll be a continuation of our treatment of verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. I invite you to read along silently this morning as I read aloud. Here, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your goodness to us as your people, and we ask now that as we are assembled here to hear the preached word, that you would bless it, that you would own it, that you would use it to reveal to us the meaning of this text this morning and that you would apply it by the Spirit's power in such a way that our lives and our thinking are transformed and that we desire above all to bring honor and glory to you, to your Son. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. This morning, as I stated, we want to continue in our new series in the book of First Peter. And our current focus is on the person and the work of God the Father. The person and the work of God the Father. For as we noted last week in our first message on this text, Peter is careful here to begin this section which opens up the discussion of the greatness of our salvation by first giving credit where credit is due giving credit where credit is due. And surely the place to begin is in offering praise to God the Father. For any true consideration, any appropriate biblical discussion of salvation rightly understood must begin with the Father. Or as Peter declared back in verse 2 of this text when he identified the audience that he was writing to, those who are elect unto salvation are there according to the foreknowledge of God the Father who foreloved them. For the very plan of salvation, which Bible scholars refer to as the covenant of redemption, the redemptive agreement made between the Father and the Son to save the elect, originated out of the everlasting love of God the Father. For God the Father first set forth in that covenant his own loving commitment to redeem his people. And God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his eagerness to please the Father and in his eagerness to shepherd those who have been given to him by the Father, chose to fulfill that covenant through his own incarnation and death. But none of this would have happened without the Father. None of this would have happened without the Father. For though he was not obligated to love us, given that he is in need of nothing and he exists in complete and perfect bliss, 
yet he expressed his great love towards us. And he expressed it, as we learned last week in verse 3, through his great mercy. His great mercy. For according to his great mercy, Peter states in our text, God caused us to be born again, to be regenerated, to be quickened from a state of deadness to a state of vibrant spiritual life, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of course, Paul's description here of what God has done through mercy and causing something to transpire in us that radically changes us testifies clearly to the fact that salvation was not initiated by us. Nor was it caused by something that we did. Nor was it brought about by something that we cooperated with. But rather our salvation, our new birth, originated, resulted from God's sovereign act upon us in mercy. It resulted from God placing new life within us, which in turn produced a new and living hope that guides us and sustains us in the way. And of course, even this living hope does not originate with us. It is not the result of us simply thinking positively or living optimistically. That's not the kind of hope that Peter is referring to here in this first chapter. Rather, this living hope, as opposed to a dead and powerless hope, which is like the one the world promotes, is a result of what God the Father has done. And that being the fact that the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he has given us a saving interest and confidence in that resurrection. For by powerfully raising Jesus Christ from the dead, God the Father guaranteed that all who are in Christ, all who are united to Christ by faith in his death and in his resurrection, will be resurrected on that great and final day. Therefore, as we carefully consider what God the Father has done, we, we quickly realize that what he has done was wisely and sovereignly planned for us from the beginning, from the very beginning. It was manifested to us in time past when the Son came to the earth and died for us. It is being demonstrated to us in the present through the new birth and the living hope that is now operating in us as a gift from God the Father. And it is going to come to us in the future as well through what we're going to talk about this morning in respect to our spiritual inheritance. Every good gift, every perfect gift, according to James 1.17, come down from the Father. It comes down from the Father of lights. And yet there is more that we should praise God the Father for than just our election, there is more that we should praise God the Father for than our present salvation and our living hope, which is supplied by his mercy. For Peter also indicates here in our text that the Father has gloriously provided for our spiritual future as well. The past has been covered. 
The present is safe. The future, brethren, is glorious. Glorious indeed. For God has set before us, he has secured for us a glorious provision. And that glorious provision which Peter identifies here in verse 1 of 1 Peter, or excuse me, verse 4 of 1 Peter chapter 1, is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. An inheritance that could never be ours by merit. An inheritance that could never be ours through human effort. But an inheritance that is extended to us by divine grace and bestowed upon us by virtue of our spiritual union in Christ. In fact, Peter makes it clear here by the placement of this benefit among all the others that it is also given by mercy alone. So what we are talking about this morning, this gift that we are talking about, this vast benefit that we are discussing is also given by mercy. For what God has prepared for our futures is just as much a demonstration of his great mercy as those things he has done for us in the past and those things that he is now doing for us in the present. And truly, there is great comfort and joy that Peter would have us to know, that Peter would have us to experience deeply by reflecting upon what God the Father has reserved for our futures. Especially in light of the fact that in this present life we are called to be pilgrims and exiles and sojourners who seek no earthly inheritance, but who seek a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10. And yet there is a temptation in this life, brethren, to be so focused on the here and now that we forget that our thoughts should be centered on what is future and what is above. And it is too this expectation of future joy that we have not yet received that Peter now speaks to us in verse 4. And I want us to see here, and I want to express here up front before we consider the proper interpretation of this verse, that I do not believe that Peter is referring primarily to physical possessions in heaven, like literal streets of gold or material rewards that Christians might receive or wear in this verse. For while the Old Testament prophets spoke to the people of, of their day using the language of physical land of promise, which would burst forth with an abundance of good things to be enjoyed, I don't think that Peter has that kind of future inheritance in mind here in verse 4. You'll see that I trust in time. Rather, I think that the inheritance that Peter has in mind and is communica communicating about here is spiritual in nature and more Christ-centered in its focus, which is why Peter will say, as we'll see a little later, that our inheritance is superior to any earthly inheritance. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In fact, brethren, it should not be difficult for us to see that Jesus Christ will be our future inheritance. And that what we will possess as a future provision in heaven 
is the presence of Christ and all that is enjoyed by having unlimited, unrestricted, and unhindered access to him. That's really the inheritance that Peter is referring to here. That would be the greatest inheritance of all. And that is the inheritance that God the Father has reserved for us. I, I trust that you'll see that this morning. Therefore, while there is a sense in which our future inheritance in heaven does involve sharing all that Christ possesses, our true inheritance is centered in Jesus. Because our inheritance is Christ himself, it can never be diminished, it can never be destroyed, it can never erode, it can never lose its power over time as an earthly or material inheritance can and oftentimes does. And of course, to prove this, Peter now uses a series of adjectives here in verse 4 to describe our inheritance in terms that assure us that what we possess in him is permanent. For first, Peter states here in verse 4, notice verse 4, that the object of our hope is an inheritance that is imperishable. Imperishable. And of course, to understand the significance of this statement, we must think back to those times in ancient Israel when a man's inheritance, whether it be in the form of land or whether it be in the form of material possessions, could perish or be lost within a single day either through a natural disaster or through the ravages of war or through some other loss. And all that a man labored to inherit in days of old could disappear before his eyes. In fact, as we read through the Old Testament, we see this is particularly true in the lives of the wicked who often lose their inheritance through their own foolishness. But it could also happen in the providence of God to a good man in days of old, given that his land or his goods were by nature perishable. For earthly inheritances are subject to the elements. They can be eroded. They can be taken away, carried away by a sudden flood. They can be consumed by a fire. They can be stolen by a robber or a thief. And therefore, those who place their trust in a earthly inheritance, in perishable things can never be certain that their inheritance will be there tomorrow. They can never do enough to eliminate the risk that everything that they now have can perish at any time without their being able to do anything to stop it. And of course, this dilemma is even worse when the state of a man's eternal soul is at stake. For when men serve material possessions, for example, they are serving that which perishes, is, that perishes, rather than serving him who ever lives and who will eventually be their judge. And when men and women go after possessions in the hope of having those possessions fill their emptiness and fill the void that they feel in their lives, they are placing their trust in perishable things that cannot last and cannot satisfy. And I wonder how many of us this morning would admit to placing our trust in perishable things. Focusing too much on things that do not last. Focusing too much on things that cannot ultimately satisfy. That's the nature 
of perishable things. No, any hope, any inheritance that depends on perishable things will eventually fail. It will eventually end in ruin for those who trust in them. But our spiritual inheritance, Peter states here in chapter 1 and verse 4, is imperishable. It is imperishable, meaning that it cannot perish. It cannot be subject to loss. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be destroyed in any sense. And of course, we could argue, as some Christian scholars do, that in this is the case because the things that we inherit above will be made out of imperishable elements or materials. But again, I submit to you this morning that this interpretation misses the point. It misses the fact that the real inheritance that we have is the divine person who is at the center of our spiritual inheritance. For our inheritance cannot perish. Why? Because it is grounded in Jesus Christ who cannot be destroyed, who cannot be subjected to death or to decay. In fact, that's the point of the resurrection. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Jesus says, death cannot hold me down. He cannot be restrained by these things. He is not subject to these things. For as Peter stated here in verse 3, God raised Christ from the dead. And as the resurrected, glorified, and indestructible Savior, Christ is the eternal rock of our inheritance. In him, our inheritance holds steadfast. Therefore, rather than having an inheritance like the ancient Israelites did, that could be carried off in a day, that could be taken from them in an hour by a superior enemy, we have an inheritance that is grounded in the permanence and in the power of Jesus Christ. And for this great blessing, we should be profoundly grateful. It is imperishable because Christ is imperishable it is not imperishable because god is using eternal matter of some kind it is imperishable because of the eternal son of god the divine son who worked and cooperated with the father in bringing about the greatness of our redemption then secondly peter states here in verse four of chapter one that we have an inheritance that is undefiled Undefiled. In the use of this adjective, no doubt, Peter is declaring that we have a spiritual inheritance that is untouched or literally unstained by the presence of sin. Some commentators interpret this as a symbolic reference to the land that the Israelites were to inherit again. They see a land promise somewhere in the background. For the promised land that the Israelites were constantly working towards, the promised land that they were told that they would receive as a reward for their obedience, would be a land that would be undefiled by the pagan peoples and by the ungodly foreigners around them. It would be a land where only the Israelites, as a separated and consecrated people of God, would be permitted to dwell and to occupy the land and where the pagan practices of sinful and defiled nations would not be allowed to be practiced within the land itself. So some see here a reference to 
the undefiled land as the fulfillment of this, maybe even heaven itself. And of course, in interpreting this statement from Peter in this way, many see it as a description of the holiness and the separateness of our heavenly inheritance, which they suggest could be heaven. In fact, they cross-reference these words from Peter here in 1 Peter 1.4 with the words from the Apostle John in Revelation 21.27, which declares regarding the holiness of heaven that nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so there certainly is a sense in which you and I look forward to a future existence in a holy city where sin no longer dwells and where righteousness will adorn every street. And yet it's also possible. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that this is my conviction, that since our true inheritance is Jesus Christ, we should recognize that our spiritual inheritance is holy and undefiled because of him. Because of him. For this Greek word translated undefiled here is often used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to unstained, unblemished perfection of spiritual sacrifices made to God. And Peter actually presents Jesus Christ within the context of this book and this chapter as one who was presented to God the Father on our behalf as a perfect sacrificial lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter reminds his readers later, down in this same chapter in verses 18, and 21, 18 through 21, that they were ransomed from their feudal ways, and they were not ransomed from their feudal ways that were inherited from their forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so if Peter was thinking of Christ as our ultimate spiritual inheritance, and I think he was, he was thinking of the fact that our future in an undefiled place, in a perfect city, whose builder and maker is God, was purchased by an undefiled, spotless, unblemished sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was offered up for us. Then thirdly, Peter states here in our sermon text, 1 Peter 1.4, that we are looking forward with a lively and living hope to an inheritance that is unfading. Notice that, an inheritance that is unfading. And by this statement, Peter is clearly contrasting our our future inheritance, which will never grow dim, which will never fade in its glory, with the perishable earthly inheritance, which can indeed fade and grow progressively dimmer. Not surprisingly, some commentators who, again, seem to be fixated on the physical features of heaven, on the heavenly architecture, if I can call that, See here a reference to the perceived brightness of the heavenly city itself, which will far exceed the brightness and splendor of any city we can imagine or envision on this side of glory. And it is possible, I guess, that Peter 
could have this unfading glory of the city of God primarily in mind here, for it would be great to see the splendor of the celestial city. It'd be great to see it. In fact, we have a, a children's hymn in our Trinity hymnal, which is entitled, There is a City Bright. And it takes as its scriptural reference, Revelation 21.2, which states, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And its description is truly beautiful. And yet, before we conclude that this city alone provides the unfading glory of heaven, we need to understand that Jesus Christ, who is our spiritual inheritance, will be the chief light of that city. We can talk about the heavenly city all we want. Sometimes it's good to contemplate what it will be like and to describe it. But we need to realize that it is Jesus Christ who is the light of that city. It is Jesus Christ who is the one who gives the city its glory, its unfading glory, and that we as his elect and redeemed people will walk eternally in the undimmed, unfading splendor of his light, of his presence, of his divine radiance and brilliance. John goes on to write in Revelation 21. I mentioned Revelation 21, but he goes on to write in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 24, these words. He said, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lamb gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it, unquote. So for Peter to say back in our text, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, that our inheritance is unfading, he must not be excluding the unfading glory of Christ himself. In fact, I think that's what he's talking about. The unfading glory of Christ himself, who is the light by which we will walk. Who is the light by which we will exist throughout all eternity. Then fourthly and lastly, beloved, let us notice here at the end of verse 4 of First Peter 1 that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It is kept in heaven for us. Of course, this declaration from the Apostle Peter is not designed to discourage us. In fact, sometimes when we hear the word kept from, we have negative thoughts. We think that something is being withheld from us unnecessarily. But rather, our spiritual inheritance is waiting there, perfectly preserved, perfectly taken care of to be dispensed to us, to be embraced by us, to be enjoyed by us at the appointed time in God's providence. Needless to say, God the Father's appointed an appropriate time for us to enjoy our inheritance will be when our earthly pilgrimage is over or when the fullness of our salvation, which Peter talks about here in this first chapter, the fullness of our salvation will appear at the last time when 
Jesus Christ himself returns in glory for us. For whether we die and go to him or whether he comes down to us does not hinder heaven. Let others be enthralled by questions like, how shall we be enriched in heaven? Or what shall we do in heaven? In fact, sometimes we even find ourselves being drawn into those kinds of questions. But this Puritan went on to say, all I know
Thank you. 